Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. They say to write what you know. It's no wonder there's been a surge in memoir writing. You know nothing better than yourself. As the art of memoir author Mary Carr said, anyone who's lived can write one. Sure, anyone can write a memoir, but does that mean people will want to read it? Memoirs can easily slip into a loosely formed confessional, maudlin and unfiltered. They also can be boring, particularly if they are a dry chronology of one's life, which, by the way, is an autobiography. Neither is gripping because they aren't formed around a concept. There's no angle to the memoir, and many don't focus on the craft of writing. Memorable memoirs focus on craft, voice, and concept. Today, we are interviewing Rob Lewis, a writer who has experience in memoir writing. He ghost wrote a memoir for a successful Jewish businessman who wanted to share the lessons he learned through life with his grandchildren and children. Some lessons were born from major personal failures. Rob is here to talk with us about the challenges of writing a memoir. Welcome, Rob, to our podcast. We are so excited to have you here with us today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here with you. Before we get a little bit of background about the memoir that you worked on, can you tell us just a little bit about your life as a writer? What does that include for you? The first thing that comes to mind is paying attention to uh, what's going on around me in all situations, paying attention especially to people, and trying to pay attention to small details to try to capture them and jot them down so that they become grist for a reflection piece or a, or a story. So really, the life of a writer, I think, begins with that kind of attentiveness to people, circumstances, situations, context, all that kind of stuff, right? And then jotting those ideas down, and perhaps they'll germinate. They'll germinate into something that turns into an actual piece of writing. Can you think of anything that you recently jotted down? Like maybe you were out to dinner with somebody, or walking, and you went home and jotted it down. Do you have any examples? I, I do. I have a. Uh, you know, we hear the concept about loving your neighbor, and what does that mean? And so there are various, various. There's lots of thinking about that, and who is your neighbor, but. I had an experience with my immediate neighbor, and you're always thinking about ways to talk to your neighbor about things that are important and all that, but uh, he loves trees, and one day he was out in his yard looking at, at the road and, uh, and an ugly tree in my yard, and so we started talking about my ugly tree, and I realized this is a tree that I don't like anymore. I want to take it down, so that conversation talked into, uh, turned into a conversation about purchasing three trees that we would share together. And uh, long story short, we did purchase the trees, one on my property, two on his. He bought, I, I came out great in the deal. I got the one he got to do. But what, it, what happened is that those trees belong to him and me now. So talk about neighbors. We look at those trees and say, those are our trees together, right? So it's, those trees drew us together. And now what happened from that is we're mowing our lawn, taking turns mowing the lawn in the same direction. And so he came back, saw the lawn. 
he he was out in the yard and he says, Rob, look at this is our yard. <laughs> and so I realized that we've, you know, this drew us together, right? In a way that was completely, I didn't, I didn't orchestrate it. I couldn't have predicted it. And now we're gonna have sit down and have beers together. So that's one good way to be a neighbor. That's the the core of a good story, I believe, about loving your neighbor. I think that you came out on the positive side on that you're getting your lawn mowed and you're getting three trees, even though you paid for one. So that's fantastic. That's exactly right. Yeah. So that's, there's, there's a humorous aspect there. I came out really well in loving my neighbor. Right. I love that you captured that moment, even though you don't have a personal context for using it right now in writing, it's something that you've captured and it will come into use later on. So before we get into the memoir writing, can you tell us what kind of writing you do? I've been working on some stories from from my from my days in boarding school it was a very interesting place a very interesting situation context uh parents sending their their kids to to boarding school at a very young age so i've been trying to write stories about that but i'm realizing that i'm trying to determine whether i'm more of a story writer or an essay writer i know that stories can be reflective they can become essays of a sort right because you're pondering some deep things in life vis-a-vis a story and uh, trying to communicate that but those are two different forms, and I am still working on, can I integrate the two somehow? Stories, I think you use stories in, all, in every kind of writing, but I think I'm probably more of an essayist who uses stories, you know, and, and graphs stories into my essay. So that's what I tend to turn to. And just then vignettes in life, you know, write, write vignettes, things that have happened to me, and draw draw principles from that, uh, draw lessons from that. I think that's what I especially like to do. So really, you are an expert in memoir writing as a strategy. So even if you're not writing a personal memoir right now, you're certainly using memoir strategies in your writing. Correct. Yes. Yeah. What things that happen to me and draw, you know, inferences from that about yeah. life, about, about, about people, I would say that that's true. So memoir writing seems to be natural for me, you know, to write it's what I tend to do and what I, what I do for others, too, or have done. Tell us a little bit about the memoir that you did write. You ghost wrote it. Tell us about the title, the storyline. Just give the audience an overview of what the memoir was about. Well, the title of the book is Zadie, and that's, that title tells us what the memoir is, is really all about. In just that one word, it really encapsulates it. In Yiddish, Zadie means grandfather, and I think in Judaism especially, grandfather Zadie, grandfather, encompasses the role of the chief storyteller to one's children and to one's grandchildren. And of course, storytelling is important in, in every family and every culture, but I think it carries a special significance for, for the Jewish people who, for most of their history, have been a people and a nation in dispersion all around the world for centuries. So telling the, the story across Generations is one of the most important ways for the Jewish people to actually retain, to keep their identity, to remember and know who they are as a people. So the storytelling from grandfather, father to children and grandfather to grandchildren is is vitally important. Zadie captures all of that. So who is Zadie in this book and what is the storyline or the journey that you take the readers on in this memoir? So Zadie is an Orthodox Jewish businessman who has retired and is now a grandfather, and he's telling the Jewish story as his own story. It is 
It is his story and not some dry account of history. But he's relaying and recounting also the history of Judaism vis-a-vis his personal story. And so he makes it vivid, and he wants to make it live for his children and grandchildren. So they have a point of reference for who the Jewish people are through their, their, their dad and their grandfather. So it's a story about Judaism, walking in the way of Judaism, retaining that, you know, that identity of Judaism I talked about, but personalizing it. So the Jewish way becomes the, this gentleman's, his way and his family's way. And so I can give you a little example of that. To an Orthodox Jew, Sabbath is, is of vital importance in their, in their religious observance. So he talks about the importance of Sabbath. And as you might know, Orthodox Judaism has many rules about Sabbath ob- observation, which are very difficult, if not impossible, to follow completely. While he, while he knows the rules and laws of Sabbath and follows them in public Jewish gatherings are very important, he makes some adjustments with the Sabbath in his personal life. So he's honoring the spirit of the Sabbath, but he's not following exactly the specific rules or the, the, all the law of the Sabbath, which are nearly impossible to follow anyways. So for Mr. Kramer, the Kramer Sabbath, if, if, if you want to call it that, includes listening to cantorial music because he loves cantorial music. It, it, it gives life to him. Strict Sabbath law does not allow listening to music, which Frank loves. For Frank, in the confines of his own home, he listens to cantorial music on the Sabbath because it's life-giving for him. So then he, 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 he takes this orthodox observance of the Sabbath, the laws, and he adjusts it to make it his own, and he keeps the spirit of Judaism while not following the law exactly. So that's one example of where he takes something orthodoxly Jewish and makes it his own. So Rob, you talk about this book being about an account of Judaism and personalizing Judaism for his family. How does he do that exactly? Well, just to, to, to reiterate again, the importance of this Jewish, the narrative, the meta-narrative, you know, the narrative writ large over thousands of years. And, and yes, Kramer, Mr. Kramer does try to encapsulate this in his own story. And so it's really a story of, of his pilgrimage. You know, we talk about the wandering Jews. He hates that because he said Jews aren't wanderers. They grab onto life and seize opportunity wherever they are, and they are more pilgrims. So his life is like a pilgrimage. But the Jewish narrative is the anchor story in which he pins, he secures his own narrative. So he tells his story as the journey of, of South African, he is a South African Jew in diaspora, and he builds a life in, in South Africa, and then he follows that opportunity from South Africa to America vis-a-vis Germany, which is an interesting route, right, to have a Jew in diaspora going through Germany. So he's not a wandering Jew. He's a Jew with, with a lot of goals, a lot of plans, a lot of ambition, and he, and he follows that as, as, as well as retaining his Judaism as he does so. He does at times wander a bit from the core tenets of Judaism, and that gives the book some interest, right? He doesn't do it perfectly, and a couple of one of the chapters especially is about that. But he always comes home to Orthodox Judaism. So home is a beacon for him, and it's, it's a powerful theme throughout the story, right? And Israel itself now is home for all Jewish people, and any Jew now in the, throughout the world is, is able to freely settle in Israel without having to do any, you know, visas and all that kind of stuff. So on this pilgrimage, Judaism has guided him through his entire life and, and his family. And, and of course, there's a history there, too, so with his parents, with his grandparents, and his great-grandparents. 
So when you were thinking about structuring this book, how did you decide what would go in this book? Because it's a really big topic. And how did you think about structure when you were looking at Mr. Kramer's life and where to start and where to end and everything in between. And, and you already mentioned a little bit of that, that tension that runs throughout, but how did tension play a part in that structure? The structure of the book was cr- roughly chronological. If we're talking about the history of the Jewish people and the history of Kramer's life, it is a progression. And so chronology is important. So we did follow a chronolo- chronological progression because that chronological progression enabled us to track his journey and also his growth as a main character in the book. And so the chronology, of course, incorporates what precedes Kramer with his great-grandparents in in Riga, Latvia, Russia, when it was very much, it was part of that crescent of Judaism in Russia. We trace that, so it's steeped in history, and we trace his story from their story as they then leave Russia, facing persecution, and go to South Africa. And then we pick up the story of his parents settling and his grandparents settling in in South Africa. And then his parents take that on, and then he he then carries the story forward. So that historical chronology is important, and then we followed his story chronologically also. And that really did help structure the book. I remember one chapter in particular about his, his life as a businessman. And some of the larger themes, what he did as a businessman. And we were writing it thematically, and it just wasn't fitting together. So we sat down with, with, with him at, at a hotel in, in, in Chicago, and we said, we're having trouble with this. And, and he just said, well, just write it chronologically as it happened, as you're doing for the rest of the book. And that, that was it. And then it all came together then. And those themes followed a chronological flow. So the structure was that very important that just really helped the book to hang together. And it just all it just all fell into place. Just going back to the structure. So it's a chronology. And I said in the intro that chronological accounts of one's life tend to be autobiographical, but you did not add everything about Kramer's life in this memoir. So how did you decide what to put in and what to keep out? So it wasn't this happened in 1973. Yeah. This happened in 1975. There were key events, I think, with a chronology. You want to focus on things that help you understand the character and that really move the character along and help the character change and grow and develop. So there are certain things that really were, that lent itself to that, understanding these events that, that by which Kramer actually changed or how he emerged, how he became a better Jew or how he emerged into leadership. That theme is large in the book, is Kramer becoming a leader within his family, in his own life, and within a business that he eventually, that he eventually joined. So the filter, if you will, is, is this becoming a better Jew in the context of trying to become a leader and trying to become a better businessman with a German company. So that was kind of like the filter that we used. And it was very important to include a massive chapter on mistakes that he made too, because those mistakes, learning from those mistakes, growing from those mistakes, was obviously one of the things that helped him become not only a better Jew, but a better leader and a better father and a better grandfather. So that's a bit about the filter we used, you know, him emerging as a leader within his family, within, within the business that he ran, and within his the synagogue, which he still now attends. So a couple things, Rob. One is I want to hear about the mistakes. I know that 
I read the the memoir that you wrote, and there was a chapter in particular that was really interesting that he included. I thought was really admirable that he included that. And I want to talk about that, but I just want to make put a point to something that I heard you say that I think is really important. And that is if, let's say, I want to write a memoir about my life, I'm not writing about everything, right? My memoir is not a junk drawer of everything in my life. So you're, you're leaving stories, you're leaving content on the cutting room floor as you write this thing. Did you find that to be true? Like some stories just didn't fit because it didn't fit these, the larger meta idea plus these themes? There were hours and hours and hours of interview, and we part of the task of writing a good memoir is is finding the right stuff, right? The right stuff yeah. for the book that fits these larger themes, and really captures the essence of who this man is and how this man developed. So, we we did cut an awful lot, and there was material, you know, when 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 he was riffing on Judaism or saying things that were uh, that we just simply could not include in the book that might be offensive to his audience. And in fact, one at one point. He was riffing and talking about some stuff, and he wanted to include in his book, and we wondered about it. And then we wrote it, and I believe this is this is the way it happened. And then he sent it to some friends of his, and a, and a good friend of his who's a journalist in Chicago, and they were appalled. We retracted that whole section because in it, it was he was almost defiant, belligerent. He's a very feisty guy, and so we knew that that would not serve the larger purpose of the book to be instructive because it was too offensive. So that stuff we cut out. And I think anyone in telling their life story is going to include a lot of stuff because it's interesting to them, but if it doesn't follow the flow and the structure of the story, and it's not ultimately interesting to the reader, it's got to go. So it's hard um, to cut. (laughs) It is hard. It is hard to cut. And that's, that's, you're right. I mean, part of the big deal writing memoir is knowing is knowing what to cut, what to include. So, there's a narrative development there. We were very selective. Let's talk about the mistakes. There were, I think, several mistakes he would say, but there was a chapter in which he became quite revealing, actually surprised me. Talk a little bit about that and how you navigated writing that chapter. He had an affair. So obviously in Judaism, bedrock of Judaism is, is a good marriage. and divorce and straying outside the bonds of marriage is, 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 is just not a good thing at all. And so to write that without being too salacious, it was really important that we set the context for this, this provocative story, and it's how we framed it. So we included that story in a chapter that we titled Mistakes and Second Chances. And the subtitle was Finding Redemption on the Downward Path of Failure. It was in the context of this, this chapter of making big mistakes and learning from them that we set that story. And what's interesting about this story, the affair was, it was kind of like in the context of failures, mistakes, and learning, it was, it was a kind of way for which Kramer was reaching, as we framed it, he was reaching for something that was good and true in his life after what he determined was the sham of his first marriage. And so in his first marriage, well into it, he realized he had made a big mistake because he and his wife simply didn't, his first wife simply didn't share the same core Jewish values. And to understand Kramer, you've got to understand that Jewish values are, are absolutely critical to him. They're, they're fundamental. So the way he posited it, the divorce and the fair, while wrong in and of themselves, 
were in the larger story a part of him living into his core values, his core identity as a good Jew. So it wasn't so much spinning the story as it was a genuine belief that he was doing the right thing in divorcing his first wife, marrying the, the woman who was right for him, and he was living into his true self. And that kind of fits with the larger theme of the book, too. So that context, that framing within that chapter was, was really vital. We also made sure that the tone of the chapter matched the title. Mistakes, Second Chances, The Downward Path of Failure. He comes across as humble, as reflective, and, and more than anything else, grateful. And that's exactly the tone he wanted. And he might not have gotten there without some help. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, uh, this is a really important point. This is a really important point, I think, about memoirs, which is you you were working with another person. So you were, in a sense, ghostwriting the memoir. So you you were working with him to kind of get that tone right to what to leave in about that affair, what not to put in. There is a tendency, I think, for us, at least in today's environment, where we want to be as salacious as possible, because there's a sense in which there's this belief that that sells, whether it's from abuse, whether it's sex, whether it's, hey, you know, whatever the, the seven deadly sin is, right? Part of writing is, is, in a sense, always holding back the reins a little bit so that you evoke imagination in your writing. And so it doesn't become, in a sense, for lack of a better word, pornography, right? Maybe talk a little bit about that as you worked, you had to work with him, but maybe even in your own writing, how you do that. I know in this book, it was really important to set this, I talked about framing, but it, it wasn't about the affair and the salacious details. It was about what he learned from these, this, this, this core mistake and what he was able, the opportunities that it opened up for him. So it was very much about something bigger than the affair itself, right? Yeah, so he yeah. focused on something larger. And, he, and it's in the context of this bigger narrative, right, of, of becoming a good Jew along the way. And, and that was very instructive. And so that's, that's, if you frame that small salacious thing or that, that more than an indiscretion, that's whatever you might want to call it, that mistake, in the larger context of learning and growing from, then it becomes instructive rather than salacious, rather than, ooh, you know, give me the, give me the juicy details. So I think you're also very spare. I mean, when you use details in writing, you have to be very spare in your use of details so that it, so that it conveys the underlying theme or what you're trying to communicate without getting bogged down. And even, even salacious details can distract, right? So it's finding the right ones. They keep the, keep the story moving. I remember this, this context of this chapter was mistakes and learning from them. And it's a story ultimately of redemption too, how he found himself vis-a-vis -vis this mistake of this affair, but marrying the second, the second person, the second woman, and, and the, he, he rediscovered himself and the joy that that brought him. So there's, a, there's an upturn here. It's not just, you know, oh, that's horrible what happened. There's a, there's a, uh, a redemptive turn. So I think all good writing is ultimately about something redemptive and something good that comes from something bad. So that was all crucial to, to this chapter and understanding that, how it helped him. It strikes me also that the more you focus on the salacious moment, the more likely you are to not influence your reader with the big idea, right? And you're, you're talking about that 
But it's kind of like my dad was a pastor and there was nothing worse when people left on a Sunday morning and said, that was such a funny story. I could totally identify that with that, but they totally missed the point of the message, right? And so it's almost people remember the salacious details, but do they remember what you're saying about the salacious details that you really want to influence people with? So I think there's there's truth in that too. Like you pull back on the salacious stuff so that people are more willing to actually hold on to the the nuggets of truth that you're you're really wanting to convey. In addition to that, Melissa, as as we wrote about that, he demonstrated that this this mistake and what he did subsequently to correct it was fundamental to his identity, and that helped him stand against the opposition of his family, who are ter- who are horrified at this. He says, "No, here I stand." Basically, you know. And he held to that conviction. And that's very important to him if you understand who this guy is and how important it is to live into that identity and stand firm. So that was very much also a theme of the book, where I stand as a good Jewish man who's learned from his mistakes. Rob, what would you recommend to people who are starting to think about writing a memoir? Where, where, where could they get started? What, what, what could they do to jumpstart the, the actual writing of a memoir? Is it about planning? Is it about jotting down kind of the major, major moments in their life? Or how, how do you think about framing out your memoir and getting to those, those kind of core anchoring stories? People want to write now. They want to write a book. Everyone's got a story. I want to write a story. I've got a story to tell. But do you really have a story to tell? Uh, is it a story that's got, that is particular to you, that is meaningful to you, that has changed your life? But is it a story that's also going to resonate with others, right? So this story, I mean, in the context of Jewish identity, right, and Jewish persecution and anti-Semitism and all of that, it's a story that, that has legs with other people. And so to nestle your story into that larger narrative, I think you've got to find this major, this meta-narrative and main theme that people are going to relate to because they're interested in that too. And then your specific story fleshes that out and, and makes it interesting and makes it alive. So I think when you're writing a memoir, make sure that it's a story that's going to, that's going to resonate with, with your readers, whoever your audience might be, right? And it might be just a small audience. You're just writing for them, but keep them in mind. It's not just me recounting my story and all the emotion that's going on with that story. You've got to have a story to tell. You've got to make a story that's going to be interesting for other people to read. I mean, fundamentally, right? So uh, with themes that they're going to relate to. And also specific details that they will also identify with. It can't be remote. That's fairly general. It's great advice, Rob, and a great note to end on. We are so grateful for the time you've spent with us this morning. Really rich and helpful insights about writing a memoir. Your work on that is now benefiting so many other people who are thinking of dipping into the memoir genre. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's been a delight. So Dave, I will go first. And my word of the episode is reconnoiter. And this word came into my life this week because my friend was talking about trying to get concert tickets for the summer. And she came across one from Mary Chapin Carpenter and Emmy Lou Harris. And we were in the car and she goes, I'll have to go to my office and reconnoiter and get back to you with more details. And so I'm like, oh, I should really know what that word means. I think I know what it means, but the meaning is make a military observation of a region or scout out. So it also can mean more generally just to scout out, do some investigating. That's the more popular use of the word. 
So reconnoiter is my word and it is spelled R-E-C-O-N-N-O-I-T-E-R. Reconnoitered. Reconnoitered. All right, Dave. So what's your word of the episode? So mine is morganatic. Ooh, morganatic. So I got this from, I'm reading biography of Catherine the Great. And so I'm going to be in this biography probably for about a year because I have so many other books that I read. And so I read this often in the morning and I'll read two pages because I'm really trying to understand the book. It's really well written. Robert Massey is his name. He won the Pulitzer for, I believe it was Peter the Great was his, he's just this Russian historian. So the word in that context, morganatic, it relates to or denotes a marriage in which the spouse of the lower rank, nor any children have any claim to the possession or title of the spouse of higher rank. So it'd be like this. So let's say that my son entered into a morganatic marriage with Brad Pitt's daughter. So that means that neither my son would get any, any money after, after Brad Pitt dies, nor would any of my son's children. So it's a morganatic marriage. So they also call them left-handed marriages, which is odd, but it's certainly in the context of Catherine the Great. But anyway, the morganatic marriage is when you marry someone that's in a higher class than you are, and neither you nor any of your kids get any, get any of their resources. Great word. It I don't know if I'll word. ever be able to use it. Maybe if no. I was writing a memoir about somebody, I don't know. <laughs> All right, Dave. Well, I am so excited about this episode. It was fun to talk with Rob, wasn't it? I, I learned so much and it will help me, even in some of the nonfiction stuff I do, well, memoir writing is allegedly nonfiction, but even in some of the more narrative nonfiction stuff that I do, I just learned a lot about this. This is really helpful. All right, Dave. Well, I think that that is a wrap. I am Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. 